Welcome back to the Midfield Politics Podcast. My name is Luke James and I'm joined across the dispatch box by Zach Green. On today's episode of the show, Zach and I are going to be discussing the third national lockdown that has hit England and of course Scotland as well. We are currently recording this podcast at quarter to six on Tuesday the 5th of January 2021. The Prime Minister's press conference is still ongoing but we've got that going on in the background. So before we get into today's episode, Zach, what's caught your attention over the past, I think, 48 hours since we last spoke? Uh, well, if anything, it'd be about 48 minutes ago that Chris Whitty provided some quite startling statistics that between the period of the 27th of December to the new year, one in 50 people in the United Kingdom has had coronavirus or has it, which however you dress that statistic up is both troubling and also quite striking as as to um, how we are dealing with, as what Boris Johnson has said, the toughest day yet of this coronavirus pandemic. Yeah, so the statistics you're talking about from the Office of National Statistics, the ONS, suggest that just over 2% of the population in England had COVID-19 in the week up until January the 2nd, that's one in 50 and potentially as high as one in 45 when you take into account the margin of error. In London, kind of the ONS estimates that the percentage of the population with COVID-19 is 3.3%, meaning that one in 30 Londoners currently have the disease. These are startling figures and there's some really interesting, uh, I say interesting, really quite frightening thing said in the press conference today chris witty said kind of the new variant is taken off across the country and the the kind of graphs to show how it was increasing in areas in particular like the west midlands and even as we speak today there were sixty thousand new coronavirus positive cases and an additional 830 fatalities on today tuesday the 5th of january the situation is spiraling rapidly it feels out of control and I feel like that provides the backdrop against which to judge today's podcast so yesterday evening on Monday Boris Johnson took to the airwaves at 8 p.m and basically said look we're heading to another lockdown he said schools must close to help stop the spread of COVID-19 and to prevent the NHS from being overwhelmed by surging infections Mr Johnson warned that the coming weeks will be the hardest yet, but said that with a fair wind in ourselves, it should be possible to vaccinate 13 million of the most vulnerable people by mid-February, paving the way for controls to be eased. Under this new lockdown that was introduced, I think at midnight this morning, which will run in England until the middle of February, schools, the vast majority of university courses, non-essential retail, leisure and hospitality facilities are closed. Scotland has also entered a lockdown, which is set to expire at the end of this month. So with all those things in mind, Zach, I think the the place to start is with Boris Johnson. What have you made of his handling of the crisis over recent days? Dreadfully incompetent. Dreadfully incompetent. The height of the government's incompetence, I think, was encapsulated over the weekend that it was... Boris Johnson, who took to the Andrew Marr show on Sunday and was alluding to national restrictions or a toughening up of restrictions and full well knowing that a lot of people will be going back to work, 
uh, yesterday on the Monday. A lot of students would be going back to school on the Sunday and it took until Monday night. So a whole day of potentially the virus and it's all its strains and developments with that to wrap, like rip through society and communities to then put in the restrictions and even then the build-up to Boris Johnson's big announcement was kind of the air of it was taken out by it essentially being briefed to Robert Pesson and favourable government journalists that here's the restrictions here's the message and it just it smacks of where we are we are essentially back to where we started in March a, a full national lockdown once again optimism of the summer optimism of a few months time uh, the only difference i'd say is the vaccination program now we'll go on to this but essentially boris johnson's handling of the coronavirus now is going to be all about how well and how effective and how widespread this vaccination program can operate in i so on sunday morning i messaged that anticipating the fact they probably hadn't watched andrew Marr live and said look you need, you need to catch up on on what's been said because the Prime Minister's interview with Andrew Marr on Sunday was absolutely extraordinary. There was a couple of times when he just didn't have the numbers that, that Andrew Marr was asking for kind of to hand, which, I mean, we're talking about Boris Johnson. I'm not particularly surprised because time and time again, the Prime Minister has shown that he's not a particularly detailed, oriented politician. That's OK. We'll park that for a moment. But what really did strike me about what happened on Sunday and then going into Monday morning as well when the Prime Minister was visiting, I think, some form of kind of laboratory where he was asked a couple of times, like, what's going on? Is something going to change? And, of course, this was sent, set against the backdrop by the leader of the opposition as well. And on Monday morning, Boris Johnson was talking about how there would be a need to toughen restrictions potentially across the country. They knew this was going to happen at some point presumably in the imminent future, and yet nothing happened on Monday morning at the start of not only the new term for schools, but also the working year. It just feels like a really bizarre way of handling things. Now, I think I, I either said this to you, Zach, or someone else privately, but if the government over the weekend and kind of New Year's Day and that, that time of time period wasn't 100% sure whether they were going to be able to keep schools open or not, kind of for the foreseeable future surely the sensible solution would have been simply to say kind of at the end of last week Thursday Friday time say look all the schools in the country we don't want you to open until the end of this week to give you more time to prepare your testing regime not only is that a positive step in the eyes of schools because it gives them more time to prepare it would also be an effective policy for the government to therefore get to this situation on, on midday on Monday and then decide that, look, school's going to close. The kids don't have to mix on Monday and we're not then going to be beaten over the head with this. I just think the political strategy on on what happened over the weekend and on Monday in particular was just so staggeringly kind of toned up. That's what really strikes me. I just don't understand why there wasn't any foresight in government to take steps to kind of carterize the damage. And and again, I, I'm looking at this from a purely political perspective. I'm kind of, for this moment in time, I'm not really addressing the actual, the, the actual issue, the human issues at hand. I'm just thinking about how the government could have handled this better 
in terms of better governance. And there were so many opportunities to do different things. And then, of course, most importantly, and this is what we do on the show, we bring on the human element of these stories. You had three million primary school kids on Monday morning, well, I say Monday morning, throughout Monday, mixing with up to kind of 30 other people in their classes, however the class however big kind of class sizes are at the moment, for what purpose? Because you go home on Monday afternoon and the decision had effectively already been made. It was already starting to be leaked to the press that the Prime Minister was going to address the nation at eight o'clock and then presumably a national lockdown will be implemented. So I just think this is another example where the government has fallen over itself and fallen over the finishing line when it really could have been a much more simple solution than this absolutely and as well if we're going to keep on this political perspective it's kind of a a score draw between boris johnson and keir starmer that I, i said this last night that boris johnson had ample opportunity to outflank keir starmer keir starmer had that massive piece in the mail that people keep bringing up about no ifs no buts and Boris Johnson could have gone to Andrew Marr and said, look, the the statistics we're getting are quite troubling. We are going to make an imminent announcement on the safety of schools. We believe that the science has now changed. and We may have to act accordingly. And if you caveated it like that, I think that Boris Johnson could have probably got away with waiting until Monday. Maybe he needed that other day to be sure. Yet he didn't. And Keir Starmer, I think Labour took advantage of that by essentially looking at statistics and saying, actually, we need a lockdown now. And it's it's a game of cat and mouse between these two. And it, it, politics aside, and putting that human element back in, it, we must be looking on in absolute despair that that's what our politics and that's what our decision making is has been reduced to about who can say it first and how strong they can say it. And it's to the detriment of the British people that we essentially waited that entire Monday. It could be a very fateful day in our statistics that that one extra day may have locked us down even further or be part of a lot more cases. I mean, today, 60,000 cases, it's expected to rise because of the shambles over Christmas messaging, let alone the New Year messaging. That's the thing as well. And we're speaking at this point, we're now nine months into the coronavirus situation in the UK. And perhaps it wouldn't be unfair to suggest that we're perhaps even longer into the crisis in governmental terms, because surely the government leading in the opposition should have been kind of clued up to what was happening before it arrived in the UK. That I sense is a discussion for another day, but we're now nine months in and I just feel like we're making the same old mistakes every single time. And this is a tangent, but one of the things I do kind of, on the side of university and the job that I have, I I referee and I tend to kind of do kids football because A, it's easy and B, you don't get loads of abuse from the parents. So it's it's a win-win situation basically. And one one of the nicest things to see is when the kids are that age, they gradually get better as they go along throughout the year. So like the start of the year, you watch some of them take throw-ins and it's abysmal and it's quite funny. But then you get towards the end of the season and they can gradually start to take throw-ins and the the football gets a bit better. What I'm saying is that even kids that age learn from their mistakes and make progress throughout the course of nine months. And I look at this government and I look at Boris Johnson and I think, what progress have we made? Because we're now nine months into this crisis 
and we've had today the highest number of positive coronavirus test results throughout kind of the duration of the pandemic in the UK. That is surely a sign, a signal of failure of leadership in this country, for me anyway. Absolutely. And I just found it quite audacious that Boris Johnson said that our worst days are to come and are happening now when it was, what, 12 weeks ago when Boris Johnson was happily on this kind of cheerleading with the Telegraph et al that we should be going back to work. We should be going back into the shops. We should be uh, fulfilling our national duties to get the economy back up and running and it's an insane breakdown of communication and, and discipline and enforcement from this government that and again people don't want to talk about it but it you see the minute the Dominic Cummings saga exploded the minute that cut through the minute that consensus on lockdown on restrictions and this idea of the national the health of the country kind of breaks down that people interpret the rules as they see them rather than how the scientists and how the science and how the virus sees the rules and that catastrophic failure of leadership and it's it was in those slides in today's press conference that had one map on on the left showing that it was quite a, a lighter greenish shades of yellow only a couple bits of indigo on the map with the 16th of december and they compared it to the 30th of December and near enough the whole country's in this teal slash indigo colour, which shows that the UK case rate has increased by 70%. For me, that's not good leadership. That's not uh, the public doing as they want. That's just a virus going through the population in a way we've not seen before. And that intrinsically has a link to the government non-enforcing and being way too late on any sort of restrictions that they have to make. And to me, it, when this is all over, and I, I still am optimistic, there will be an end date of some sort as to when we can resume to some sort of normality. I think the electorate and people are going to look at this period rather than the period at the start as to did the government fail? Is the government human in, the, in terms of they made their mistakes and they fixed it? Or were the government just drastically incompetent? And I fear it will be the latter. The BBC rather helpfully has just published a list of things that we learned from today's daily briefing. So I'm going to run through kind of the list at the moment. We should emphasise yet again, we're currently recording this podcast at six o'clock on Tuesday, the 5th of January. The Prime Minister Boris Johnson said more than one million people are currently infected in England with the numbers of patients in hospitals 40 percent higher than the first peak. He said that over 1.3 million people have been vaccinated in the UK so far, including 1.1 million in England and more than 650,000 people aged over 80 years old. Almost 1,000 vaccination sites will be operational by the end of the week, including 559, uh, 595 rather GP-led sites. The Prime Minister said there'll be daily updates on vaccinations from Monday to ensure maximum transparency. Professor Chris Whitty said that UK case rate increased by 70% in the last two weeks of 2020. Whitty also said that the new variant was also taken off in all areas of the United Kingdom. He went on to say that more people are in hospital than ever, noting that this increase means we will inevitably see a rise in deaths in the coming weeks. To conclude, Boris Johnson said, with certain provisions, it could be possible to end lockdown measures in mid-February. 
I'm not entirely sure I agree with the Prime Minister's analysis that this is likely to end in mid-February, but I feel like we'll park that thought to a side for a moment and shift our attention over to the leader of the opposition, Sakir Starmer. As I said at the top of the show, over the weekend it became clear that Sakir Starmer intended to call for a national lockdown. The only question was when he would do so. The leader of the opposition called for a third national lockdown on Monday morning and spoke live on BBC News after the Prime Minister's national address on Monday evening. The situation we're in is obviously very serious, Sakia Starmer said. Whatever our criticisms of the government, we've all got to pull together to make this work. Since then, the leader of the, leader of the Labour Party has come under a fair amount of flack for his comments on television last night. What have you made of Starmer's performance over recent days and weeks? I think, if anything, this has been Starmer's point of maximum weakness. Now, I said this, that this would be over Brexit in terms of politically in the Commons, but in terms of with the public and uh, with with the coronavirus, it, it has been the last couple of days. Uh, he's always been quite ropey with schools. And although I have some sympathy as to... Well, for the matter of fact, he's not the prime minister. He doesn't have to make these decisions. And when you're leader of the opposition in times like this, you can kind of just keep calling for the opposite. But I think his interview with Sam Coates on Sky was just, it was shambolic. He was stuttering. He was backtracking. He was really scrambling for cover. And we were none the wiser as to his position on the schools. He, he still could be tied down to it. And I think tonight he will be doing a national response to Boris Johnson's lockdown on BBC, on the BBC at seven. Yet, ultimately, people are going to be talking about Keir Starmer's pledge back in what seems an eternity ago, back in September, that schools have to open, no ifs, no buts. And he still cannot answer as to why that position has changed. And for me, that's a big issue for him and... A, mo a moment of weakness for him. I agree. I think Starmer this weekend and the start of this week has been really... Uh, I can't even think of the word. He's just been so... I, I was going to say average, but it's actually been worse than that. He's been under average. He's been pretty bad, in all honesty, in terms of what he's been saying to the press and how he's been conducting himself. He's just not really displaying the leadership we'd seen from him throughout kind of the first months of his leadership he looks like he hasn't got over his Christmas hangover essentially something doesn't feel right with Sakir Starmer and he's not performing particularly well what I would say is I think and we're seeing this a lot on social media in particular particularly particularly among kind of right-wing conservative voting um, members of the press talking about how Sakir Starmer did say well no ifs no buts the schools need to open what I would say and I think there's a really easy defense that Labour haven't made enough of is that, well, we said this back kind of in September when it wasn't entirely clear whether the schools would open or not. And we were asserting that it was essential that schools did open in September. And and the thing to remember about those comments was Sakia Starmer made them in the context of saying that if the schools don't open, it will be a huge failure on the part of the government was the actual message he was trying to get across there. And again, I think this is another example where messaging from the Labour Party, messaging from opposition parties has just been completely lost in the weeds. And again, that's not to defend Sakia Starmer because he should be doing better than that. But for some reason, that message isn't getting across. 
And to re-emphasize my first point on this topic, I think Starmer has done a pretty awful job over recent days. I, I don't really know what he's done. And, and prior to this, I, I thought he'd been doing okay. I, I would have given him a, a 7 out of 10, I think, at the minute he's, he's currently performing on a 4. If anything, though, it, it's the story of Keir Starmer's leadership so far is that at the moment, Labour can just say they're not the Tories and they're not Boris Johnson. And people may have a more positive opinion of them than, than last year. That That's the position the Labour Party are in, that the government are doing so badly with the coronavirus response. I think their polling figures have absolutely tumbled. I think they're in the negative 60s now as to their handling of the coronavirus. So to an extent, Keir Starmer can get away with the odd gaffe or the odd mumble. Yet at the same time, and we said this, I think, ever since Keir Starmer become leader, the point of the Labour Party at the moment is they have to look like a government in waiting, an alternative government, an alternative programme. And this was a perfect opportunity to say, here's what Labour would do and how they do it and why they're doing it. And Keir Starmer's not being able to answer it. And considering education, education, education has been that famous facet of the Labour Party, you'd, you'd always think that this has always been a strong point for them, yet... He has really struggled. And again, it, I think it'll be a temporary struggle for Keir Starmer. There are s several other issues that he can get Boris Johnson on and get him on them well. It's just a matter of this at the moment because it's in the news, because it's happening right now as to schools. He is going to be under fire. And if he can't get the messaging on point, I think Labour may have to um, reconsider its media strategy. You still there? Yeah, yeah. You cut out when you he was about oh. to say messaging on point. Oh, uh, if they don't get their messaging on point, then they'll have they'll have to be a rethink as to their actual policy. Because if this was to cut through that Keir Starmer's differing on schools, I think it's an easy character assassination of that Captain Hindsight, Captain Foresight, whatever you want to call him, and that will may stick. And it's, it'll be a problem. So they, they'll have to either change their policy or change their strategy. I agree. I think the Labour Party are starting to slide on the coronavirus. I thought they'd done an OK job thus far, just basically being a foil to the government. I don't think they had to provide particularly visceral opposition or be particularly kind of different from the government. I think they needed to show that they were kind of, we're all in this together, but we're still going to, going to hold you to account. I think at this point, there was an opportunity for Labour to get ahead of this and get ahead more substantially because it's been really obvious for quite a while that this was going to happen. I mean, I think we predicted that kind of e even kind of immediately after the, the November lockdown that something like this could potentially happen. People have been saying this for weeks and no one was prepared to stick their necks out. And I think what I have noticed and what's becoming more and more obvious as this wears on is that politicians are really scared to take responsibility for any of their decisions. So, like, we're hearing a lot about how well we're listening to the science. And that's that's okay, that's fine. But, of course, it is ultimately, as as Chris Whitty said in today's press conference, sometimes it is a matter of p political decision-making. And sometimes you need to get ahead of the curve on these things. Sometimes you need to be a little bit preemptive. And then the situation's different. 
that's kind of where my head's at. I think Labour are doing pretty poorly, not as poorly as the government, but that's because they're presiding over this mess. Labour have kind of saved... Watching on. Yeah, and it does feel like they're watching on very, very passively at this point. That, that's that been my biggest criticism. It appears to me that Keir Starmer and Labour just seem to be waiting to say something rather than taking the initiative and, and, and coming out and, and setting the narrative themselves. So, for example, when it was brief that uh, a third national lockdown may be in the offing, three hours later, Keir Starmer then calls for one. And it's almost as if they are literally waiting for a hint and then they, then they will take the initiative. I think that's, a again, because these are unprecedented times and this is a national emergency, they can get away with that somewhat. But at the same time, there will have to be a there'll have to be a, a kind of watershed moment where Labour have to stick their neck out on the line, like they did when they called for the circuit breaker lockdown uh, back in, again, what's even eternity ago in, in October, and own it. And at the moment, they're not. They, they just seem to be relying on briefings and leaks to then cast off as the, what I said it first. And I think the public will not like that in, in the next few weeks. They're going to want assertive either government or assertive opposition as to providing some sort of leadership in this crisis. Speaking of politicians who are meant to be providing leadership in this crisis, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Rishi Sunak, re-emerged today, 34 days after his last appearance, and he announced the package, a kind of support package for businesses, which will allow around 600,000 businesses to access a one-off grant of up to £9,000 in a move which is expected to cost about £4.6 billion. The Chancellor also announced the further uh, £594 million for local authorities and evolved administrations to support businesses not eligible for grants as new lockdown measures are introduced. However, he stopped short of extending business rate, business rates, holidays and cuts to VAT, which were kind of two of the policy areas that pressure groups were most interested to hear about. Zach, what do you make of the Chancellor's package? Well, it's what I think people are fearing that Laura Coonsberg got a lot of stick for her analysis back at the at the spending review that the credit card had maxed out. And I, I do believe we're now beginning to bear the brunt of that reality that not that there's no magic money tree as such, but eventually the more money you spend, the less money there will be to spend afterwards. And the government's kind of policy for the last month is spend, spend, spend and worry about it later. We're now at the later stage. Nothing has changed um in terms of the virus we're now back back to square one in terms of lockdown and the economic pressures are now heightening we have a budget on march the first and that budget will be taking place while the it's likely that most of the country will still be in a form of lockdown furlough ends in april i don't think that'll be extended quite frankly and there are severe economic issues that i think that the chancellor's announcement today just wasn't it, it seemed pale because of the number is 4.6 billion. As you compare them to all the other Rishi Sunak policies that cost you cost tens, twenties, if not hundreds of billions of pounds. And as you go further on in this crisis, I think the the packages are going to be more threadbare and and less supportive as they were last year, which could prove again a problem as we are beginning to see bankruptcies increase 
liquidations increase and also unemployment increasing as well. The Chancellor has a really difficult... I mean, all of the politicians have a really difficult jobs on their hands. I think that goes without saying. And the Chancellor is no different in that regard. I do think it was interesting that we haven't really heard from Rishi Sunak for a very long time. Perhaps that was because of kind of the report into the Out to Help Out scheme, which, of course, he was very much front and centre of. And when your face is kind of plastered around Weatherspoon's pubs across the country, it's pretty difficult to distance yourself from a policy after that happens. So maybe that's why Rishi Sunak hasn't been spending too much time with the press of late. But yeah, I think this new policy is interesting. The question for me going forwards on the package that Rishi Sunak did announce is simply, well, what happens if this lockdown is extended? Kind of what does that look at, look like? And the other thing, and I don't think this needs much emphasis because we've been saying this for months, nothing has changed. And again, the same situation, nothing has changed once again. There is no support for the self-employed and kind of one person, private limited companies. It's just ridiculous how many people have been excluded from government support throughout this pandemic. And it's I mean, it's been obvious for months that nothing was going to change in this regard, because if the government was going to act, they would have already done so. But for the party that claims to be kind of the party of small businesses, that's quite stunning in all honesty, that they still haven't done anything to help the people who've been excluded from furlough and the likes. Zach, should we talk about vaccines? Let's go. So the Prime Minister aims to vaccinate the four highest priority groups in time for the middle of February, which is, of course, when this lockdown is meant to end. That's 13 million people, and kind of this includes care home residents and their carers, everybody aged over 70, extremely clinically vulnerable people and frontline health and social care workers. In order to meet this target, the United Kingdom needs to vaccinate 1.9 million people per week. The current rate, as of yesterday, was 0.3 million people per week. In today's press conference, the Prime Minister doubled down on this pledge. And again, that was backed up by the scientific and medical advisors to the government. Do you think the government is being realistic here? No. Um, again, it's the government's blind optimism that's trying to make us at home feel optimistic there is some sort of light at the end of the tunnel. And you contrast that with the, I wouldn't say brutal reality and the brutal truth, but the kind of deadpan truth being delivered by Chris Whitty and Patrick Vallance at the press conference today that, it's all well and good saying there's going to be vaccines. People aren't going to be vaccinated in their millions. Yet you can't keep promising X million a day and X million a week will be vaccinated because you just do not know. You cannot predict how distribution, how actual the speed of these vaccinations are going to go on. I think at the moment, what is it that we have vaccinated 1.5 million people? Is that right? kind of we have to pick up the pace quite dramatically for lockdown to finish in mid-February and the government prided itself back in December that we were the first country to sign off the vaccine and I think that's not going to be what the British public actually care about it's going to be whether or not the British well the Britain 
will be the first country to come out of this crisis and to come out of lockdown and to go back to normal because after all they were the first ones to have the vaccine right and if that doesn't happen i think again the goodwill towards the government's going to be in short supply so yeah there's been 1.3 million people according to the prime minister who have currently had the vaccine i think it's actually and james o'brien made this distinction on twitter today kind of during the press conference is that of course all of the vaccines in question are or most of the vaccines in question are two dose vaccines and the strategy with regards to the vaccination that has changed and chris witty went into detail on this in today's press conference and the government has shifted the goalposts on this so basically the task now is to give as many people as possible the first of the two doses of the vaccine therefore giving more people approximately 50% coverage and up in terms of protection against the virus. This way you then protect more people more quickly and then hopefully you suppress the number of potentially most vulnerable people from catching the virus. The previous strategy, kind of the conventional strategy would be to administer the first dose kind of on day one and then the second dose 21 days later. That way you'd kind of have 100% coverage rather than 50% coverage. That received a scathing review in the New York Times, which was interesting in itself. But the science behind this is clear, albeit not entirely kind of supported by everyone who believes this is the best strategy. But the idea is basically vaccinate as many people as possible and we'll try and beat the virus down. Do you think this is a good idea, Zach? Providing it's done well, yes. And one good thing I think the Labour Party has done, they've integrated the idea of vaccination in their national message, that it's uh, stay-at-home, government does this, vaccinate Britain. Now, that's a good thing to say. And it again, we I think it gives the British people kind of the idea, OK, this is the way out. The way out is the vaccine. Again, if it's done well, it isn't outrageous to say that, yes, lockdown can can finish finish in inverted commas on February the 16th and onwards the problem is how are you going to do it is it going to be 24-7 vaccinations I know a lot of people are saying that could be a, a way out to get more people vaccinated again there's going to be problems with that there's no easy way out here and the vaccine has its problems as well there's a twitter storm at the weekend about mixing the matching vaccine so well, we are at a very critical moment in terms of the vaccination programme that one slight bit of disinformation could bring the whole circus tent down. And again, credit to the government for quickly batting away that conspiracy theory about mixing and matching, mixing and matching vaccines. But yes, it, it inevitably is going to require a lot of work as to getting that first dose. And I think Tony Blair said this in what has proved to be quite an influential piece in The Independent about getting the British people their first jab. It's not about getting X, those jabs very quickly. It's about getting as many people as you physically possibly can with the first jab immediately to reduce the kind of brutality of the virus. And then once the second jab's available, get the second jab and then hey-ho, voila, you have a relatively safer country. Indeed. I think this is ultimately where the government's plans hinge on. I read a BBC article earlier which basically said there's a number of ways how this could potentially come 
unhinged. One of them was the suggestion that the world could not run out, but there could be a shortage of the glass vials which are used to store the vaccine in. You could have issues in terms of getting the vaccine into the country, distributing it, and you could also have an issue in terms of kind of rolling out the vaccine itself. I think given the government's track record on implementing policies kind of since Boris Johnson became prime minister, I worry that this is going to be a painless process because you only have to look as far as the notoriously world-beating test and trace system to realise that the government has a propensity to overpromise and under-deliver. And in this instance, we're now facing another six weeks of national lockdown. It's really high stakes now for the government, because if they mess this up, the lockdown will probably be extended and people are going to get very angry. And I think the thing that I've been thinking about on a practical level is... So Coventry, where I am now, is currently in tier four and, well, was in tier four rather when the lockdown came into force. And that meant that non-essential retail was closed. And I was thinking about this kind of in terms of the in, in terms of the part time job that I had, thinking kind of in conjunction with when I might go back and university and all this kind of stuff. And it's like, well, if we do exit lockdown at the end of February, or middle of February, rather, and it all goes to plan there will still presumably be lots of places across the country who are in tier four, therefore meaning that lots of them will feel like they've not really moved out of a lockdown at all, apart from things like kids being able to go back to school. That will be the only major difference between the two. So even if this does go faultlessly, I think there's a need to think about what might come next and how slowly we might actually emerge from, from this third kind of, January lockdown as as we approach and as we start to move into it. Zach, I feel like we've probably covered the school's angle quite well. We spoke about how the Prime Minister appealed on Andrew Marr, saying one thing and then the next thing, kind of 24 hours later, the position had changed. Have you got any comments about schools or should we move straight on to universities? I, I think we've, we've covered a lot there and yeah, there's nothing else I'd really want to add to the conversation on that sure. point. The, the only thing on schools I'll, I'll say really briefly is about the decision to cancel exams in the summer. Um, I think this was inevitable. I think the government, after the Welsh kind of government announced this kind of last year at this point, that exams would be cancelled. I was amazed that English kind of legislators didn't follow. The, the major thing that I'm surprised about is that there's a number of winter sessions that are set to place, take place in January for kind of BTEC courses that are still meant to go ahead. And I think that is grossly, grossly unfair on the people who are sitting kind of these exams in January compared to the people who are sitting the exams in the summer. And this is something that the, the Department of Education has doubled down on as well. So if we're likely to see another government U-turn on education, that is where we're going to see it. However, moving on to a topic extremely close to Zach and I's heart, university study in the United Kingdom, what I'll do is I'll read out a section of what Boris Johnson said at the press conference that I copied down as he was speaking. Well, obviously, we'll be looking at what's happening to students very carefully. What we hope is that they'll get online learning that will allow them to continue with their degree courses. There will be issues with the cost of accommodation, which we'll have to look at. So, Zach... What do you think of the government's handling of the coronavirus and universities kind of this year? Non-existent, inept. 
uh, callous and, and quite neglectful, really, that even in the press conference today, Boris Johnson was very vague and it was all in the language of deferral. And we'll talk about it later when really a lot of students are in the lurch. A lot of us are at home. We're not actually on the campus. We're quite far from the campus. A lot of people have rent, whether it's private accommodation or university accommodation, that's set to be paid in a matter of a couple of weeks. Uh, a lot has been left uncertain, lots up in the air. And the government had so many opportunities over the past 48 hours just to offer a, a bit a bit of certainty. And they haven't. And that's on Gavin Williamson, the Education Secretary, and Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister. The fact that neither have taken the initiative on television or even in some sort of briefing to one of their favourite journalists over how they're going to uh, approach these issues that a lot of thousands of children, students even are facing is nothing short of negligent, in my opinion. What I'm going to do now is I'll just read from the document that the government released last night so on on monday evening following the prime minister's national address it says those students who are undertaking training and study for the following courses should return to face-to-face -face learning as planned and be tested and be tested twice upon arrival or self-isolate for 10 days so that's the same kind of rapid testing that students would have had before using the travel window back in December. The courses included are medicine and dentistry, subjects allied to medicine and health, veterinary science, education, and then in brackets, initial teacher training, social work, and also courses which require professional statutory and regulatory body assessments or mandatory activity in January. So that was a bit of a mouthful, but we'll move on. Students who, of course, it doesn't say that in the document, students who do not study these courses should remain where they are wherever possible and start their term online as facilitated by the university until at least mid-February. This includes students on other practical courses not on the list above. If you live at student, if you live at university you should not move back and forward between your permanent home and student home during term time. So the message from government on this is pretty clear. If you are currently not at your university address and you're not studying one of the courses that we've just mentioned, you should stay at home. Of course, there's a really obvious issue with this plan insofar as students are expected to pay for their accommodation until the summer. And this guidance suggests that students shouldn't go back to that accommodation. So Zach, how do you think government should approach this issue? It's... It's unenviable because we know that any decision is going to upset one half because I think it's much easier for those who are living on campus, in my opinion, that the government can support universities financially uh, or, or at least have some sort of input there. Whereas with private landlords and private accommodation, it's going to be a minefield and whether that, that's a, I don't know, a rent deferral or a rent holiday or some sort of government bursary or something to the landlords is just for me that would be the minefield rather than the the actual universities so i think that that's that's the headline is that there are two groups here it's not just university students in one bubble it's going to be ones who are on campus one who ones who are off campus and even then 
it boils down even to a more remedial issue that every student who's either listening to this, myself, you, and practically every student in the country is suffering from this idea of online slash blended learning. Let's be very frank here. It's substandard delivery. It's not the same as on-campus teaching. It, it just isn't. And as much as universities want to claim that it is, and it, it does make up for not being on campus, it quite clearly doesn't. And that's another issue. I think that's an issue more of optics for the government. There's, do you really expect students to pay £9,250 when, when, of course, they're earning, when they're, when they're paying their tuition fees back, for very much substandard, quite absentee teaching? That's another question. And again, that's a question of optics of the government that they can defer, whereas I think the immediate needs are those accommodation fees. I think the point you made really interesting because, of course, and I think this is this strikes at the heart of why students are finding this so difficult to navigate kind of among friends is the fact that people who are currently living on campus clearly have a more simplistic means of, of getting around this problem because being threatened by your university is different to being kind of potentially sued by a private landlord I, I think it's fair to say and again we've seen rent strikes happen over the years anyway so this isn't something that will be completely new to universities particularly following following the experience of, of the last year on the point you make about tuition fees this is something that I feel really passionately about so this year I have had one hour per week in person throughout kind of from from October until the Christmas break which let's be honest, is pretty naff because you sit in a room, spread around the perimeter of the room, talk about politics for an hour. Is there any point when it takes me kind of half an hour to get there, half an hour to get back? There's nowhere to sit. There aren't any cafes open. It's pretty, let's be honest, it's rubbish. It's, it's, it's a bit silly, especially for one hour a week. And then I look at the cost of an open university degree, which kind of if you do an honours degree with the Open University, it takes you six years to complete and it costs you £3,000 a year. So that's £18,000 in total. And I just think, well, over the course of three years, I'll be paying twenty seven grand for my tuition. And the last two years have been really substandard. And I will, I will talk about this until I'm blue in the face. There is nobody on the planet who is going to convince me that we get the same quality online as we would face to face, because if that was the case, they would have been teaching us online before the pandemic happened anyway, because it would be a more cost effective way of doing things and it would make the university's life so much easier. So there's absolutely no chance in hell that I will believe that we're, we're getting the same kind of tuition. And I think that puts the government in a really difficult situation. And again, we've seen this on social media a lot over the last couple of days, people talking about how kind of, students should receive a refund, students should kind of be reimbursed, there should be some kind of student loan forgiveness. I think there's lots of things that the government could do, and I suspect won't do. But what surprises me the most about this is that Sakia Starmer and the Labour Party aren't looking at this, and to quote mm. a rather unfortunate phrase from, from during this pandemic, seizing on another crisis, because this is an opportunity where they could have a really clear policy that would undoubtedly be really popular with students, and the best thing about having a policy at this point in time 
on the 5th of January 2021, if I am the leader of the Labour Party, would simply be that I don't have to implement it. It's just, mm. and I know it's that's optics. really cynical. But, but it's it, optics, isn't it? It's gold dust, isn't it? It's simply so, so easy for the Labour Party to turn around. And again, this is a party that has a history of being very much on that side of the debate when it comes to student finance, especially kind of under the stewardship of of Jeremy Corbyn. So it just seems odd to me that the Labour Party haven't done anything on this. And again, to the same extent, I'd include the Liberal Democrats on this. I think it's a, it's a really easy opportunity for the Lib Dems to stand up and say, look, we're offering this to students and perhaps they might kind of stop bashing us over the head with what happened under the coalition government. I, I don't suspect that people would, but it would be nice to, to see a party make an effort in that regard. Any final thoughts for this episode of the podcast, Zach? Because we said we were aiming for half an hour and we're currently, I think, in excess of 45 minutes. So I'll hand it over to you to wrap up. I think you make a really good point about the Labour Party, that as is at Labour's electoral task, again, I, I, I said this last night as kind of both in my politics hat on, but also as a student, that I understand why we are going to be neglected by the Labour Party. It's quite clear that students are going to be voting Labour anyway. You're looking at university seats, as for example, Cambridge, Canterbury, leaning on safe Labour seats at the next election. They're not going to be up for grabs. And the kind of the, the portion of the electorate that is going to take Keir Starmer to number 10 is not going to be university students such as myself and you. It's going to be those who aren't going to university, who don't believe the education system works for them, who are who feel like they fall through the cracks, they don't have a job, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So Keir Starmer's, you know, coming out and saying, well, all oh, these poor students, we're going to actually help them. I don't think changes anything dramatically. And I, I understand I understand why he's do, not doing much about it. But at the same time, of course, because I'm a student myself, I'm upset that he isn't because that's a golden chance to kind of have that idea that all politicians aren't the same. The Labour Party actually does stand for something under Keir Starmer. But there'll be plenty of opportunities as this lockdown develops as to how Labour can distance themselves from the government, how they can make themselves their own party and their own policy. My final thoughts for today's podcast, really, really simple, is that this has been an almighty mess from absolutely everyone involved. And to end on a really cheery note, I'm not particularly sure it's going to get better anytime soon. And that's really sad. And I think that underlines the fact that government has definitely failed us. Have failed us. And that's really terrible. And when we're nine months into this thing, you would expect better. And to end the show, I want to just read out the number to ring for the Samaritans. It's 116123. And there's, if you are struggling, there are loads of people who can help. And I think that's an important message to end on. And, and that is where we will end for today's podcast. As always, my name has been Luke James. I've been joined across the dispatch box by Zach Green. You can follow the Midfield Politics podcast on Twitter at Midfield Politic. And if you ever want to tweet us and we're trying to get the brand out there, please include the hashtag, hashtag midpoll. Most importantly, though, until next time, stay safe and keep voting.